Good morning. This morning, our scripture reading, scripture reading will be coming from Romans 8, verses 26 through 39. And it reads, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray as for we thought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind knows knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to confirm to be confirmed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he just called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That, what then shall we say to those things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is God, is it God who justifies? Whom is he to, con- who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is, the, who is at the right hand of God, and indeed intercedes for us. Whom shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or discretion, or de- sorry, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for the sake we are all for the sake we are being killed at the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. George Matheson lived in 19th century Scotland. He was a student in biblical studies, very gifted student. In fact, by the age of 19, he had already graduated from the University of Glasgow. It seemed like everything was going well in his life. He was engaged to his fiancée. They were engaged to be married uh, at the age of 19. But by the age of 20, Mr. Matheson realized something that had been trending for quite a while. His eyesight had been deteriorating for several years through his teenage years. By the age of 20, between his meetings with the doctors about his condition, he realized that he was going blind. He would not recover from this. He would be blind for the rest of his life. He broke the news to his fiancée, hoping that she would take it well, would accept it, and that they could move on with their married life together. But this was not the response Mr. Matheson received. The fiancée told him that she could not go on with their wedding plans She could not see herself going on with the burden of being married to someone with such a disability. She returned his ring and she left him. 
Thankfully, Mr. Matheson had a sister who was very close to him. The sister even helped him through some of his ongoing graduate studies. She learned Greek and Hebrew to be able to assist him with things that he may need to, to look up since he no longer had his eyesight. Years later, that sister came to him with some good news, at least on her behalf. She was engaged. She was going to be married and wanted to share that news with him. Mr. Matheson had mixed emotions, as you can imagine. He was very happy for his sister. He knew that she was marrying a good man and that he should feel joy for her. And yet at the same time, he could not help but reflect on what might have been for him had his fiancée not turned her back on him. And he also couldn't help but feel that in a sense, he was losing the person who had been the closest to him, the sister who had helped him through so much. She would at least no longer be as present in his life because she was going to be starting a family of her own. In the midst of his reflections on all of these things, feeling lonely, George Matheson went back and he wrote these words on June the 6th, 1882. The words of the hymn we just sang. A love song to the one he knew would never leave him nor forsake him. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. It's become one of my favorite hymns. I love it for many reasons. I think Mr. Matheson probably had a lot of scriptures on his mind when he wrote this song and captures a lot of the Christian message. But I am almost certain that one of the passages that he had on his mind was Romans chapter 8. The last section of Romans chapter 8, which Dylan read for us this morning. I ask you to have your Bibles open to that section. I'm going to be putting some of that up on the screen, but not it in its entirety. And I want you to be looking through it to reflect on some of these things for the inspiration for a hymn such as this about a love that will not let us go. In chapter 8, verse 35 of this text, someone who, as Mr. Matheson, had experienced abandonment, he'd experienced separation from many things, but he knew this love which would not let him go. This verse is going to ask and it's going to ask us the question of who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ. And it's, then it's going to propose a few things. Here are some of the, the proposals of what, what might separate us, the things that could separate us that we could think of, tribulation that we experience, 
distress, persecution. Some of these things overlap in this text. They involve harm coming to you. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Every one of those, in some sense, are experiences of separation. They are separation from comfort. They are separation from good health. They are separation from well-being. They all represent a type of abandonment, we could say. Being abandoned by your fellow human beings who mistreat you. Isn't that really what persecution is? Those who have turned on you instead of loving you and are showing something very opposite of that to you. Abandonment from those who should have been there for you in your moments of darkness. Isn't that what distress is? Isn't that what tribulation is in many ways? Abandonment by your income. Abandonment by your expected food supply or by your clothing. Isn't that what nakedness and famine represent? The things that that we need for the overall well-being of ourselves, at least of this body, all of these represent some type of abandonment of those things. You being separated from those things. Now what Paul keys in on among all of these things that you can see captured in several of those terms there is this idea of bodily harm because of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, which was not only a possibility in the first century context, it was very much a probability that you would experience this on some level. He even quotes from Psalm 44. That's a psalm I encourage you to go back and read, maybe some homework in addition to this lesson today. Psalm 44 is one of those psalms which raises a lot of those tough questions to God. It's about people who are being persecuted, who are being mistreated, who are experiencing that abandonment, and they are starting to wonder, does this also mean that God has abandoned us? Would God be faithful to us even when we are persecuted, even when we are mistreated, even when we are, as that text says, like sheep who are being slaughtered all day long? Now we're not only in the realm of bodily harm, we are in the realm of death itself. It would be very tempting to say that any of these things could lead us to believe that God had abandoned us, that these were signs that he no longer loved us. Whereas Psalm 44 leaves you with a bunch of questions about that. You're still wondering that at the end of that psalm. It raises the questions. I'm convinced that part of the reason why this New Testament text goes back to that is to say the questions that were raised here, they may not have been answered there, Let me definitively answer them for you now that we know God in the form of Jesus Christ. And that's why we read these last three verses of this chapter. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. There's that idea of love again there. It is saturated in this. This passage is saturated with it. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Conquerors over what? Conquerors over everything that is about to be named here. Everything that's already been named, everything that's about to be named here. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You talk about some universal language, they are trying to encompass everything you can imagine. Now we're not only in the realm of things that uh, uh, fellow humans that can mean you harm or, or your body being without some of what the necessities to, to thrive in this life. We're even into the realm of the spiritual beings that we've been looking at in some of our other lessons. Satan himself, any of the dark powers in the universe, the, the tools that he has tried to use against mankind forever, even death, the last enemy that will be destroyed, the great enemy of mankind that we read of, 1 Corinthians 15. None of that. Things present, things to come, nothing in the, in the time frame, nothing spatially by height or by look. The, the, anything you can imagine, any being, any force, there is nothing that is powerful enough to break the chain of God's love binding you to Him. Now, if that's not a powerful passage, the word power already being used at the beginning of the book of Romans for what the gospel is. And if this is not reinforcing that for you, I don't know what is in the Bible. Today I want us to consider for a few minutes, I want us to consider what grounds this kind of confidence. It's one thing for the Bible to come out and say that, Paul says here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, I'm convinced that none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, okay? We may ask him, how do you know that? What's your basis for believing that? And that's where we want to back up in this text. I want you to have it open if you got it. I want you to look, look at it with me today and look, survey through that text and then reflect on these things during our lesson, reflect on them after our lesson, and really think about what leads to this conclusion that we have at the end of this chapter. I'm going to give you four of those aspects of this passage that I find here that I find helpful to ground this confidence that we have that we are not separated from the love of God. The first one is this. It is that we are part of a purposeful calling. We're part of a purposeful calling. God has overseen the whole process of our calling and transformation in this text hits on all of that. Did you notice some of the words that are used in this text for what God has done? We were foreknown, we were predestined to a sanctified life, specifically to conformity to the image of Jesus himself, to no longer just be who we have become in this fallen world, but to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That is our destiny. That's the design God has for us. This is why we are calling this a purposeful calling. So we were foreknown. We've been predestined to that. We have been called to that. The invitation is out there for us, just as Jesus was calling disciples. We've been called to that. We who are in Jesus have been justified. That means we've been made righteous. 
That means we have, we have ta- that guilt has been taken away to where God no longer sees that guilt. He sees the righteousness of Jesus instead. And we are destined for glorification. We've been glorified in Christ, meaning that one day, if we are in Christ, then we've been justified. Then we know that our final destination is that our bodies themselves will be transformed. They will be glorified into something in conformity with Jesus Christ. We will be raised in His likeness. That's the whole process of what God has been doing. His creative, purposeful project with humanity is captured by those five actions. And think about what has taken to show us that God really means what He says when this is His design for us. This text emphasizes time and time again, God is for us. He's not against us. He is for us. He has put this plan in motion for us. And if you look at the language that is used here, if you go to Romans 8, 28, probably the most familiar verse out of this chapter for us, it is going to emphasize that our calling, those who have been called, is according to the purpose that God has for us. He has a long-term purpose for each of us that He has designed. And if you go down a few verses... You can see the lengths that God went to in order to reach that purpose, in order to make that purpose possible. Because this text is going to highlight for us that he who did not spare his own son, that's what it took in order to carry out his purpose. This project of renewing us, of recreating us, of transforming us, he knew the price would be the life of his own son. It would mean that he would have to come down here among us, walk among us, and suffer among us so that we could have this purpose fulfilled in our lives. Now let me ask you this, because I think the text is asking you this. If God went to those lengths for you, if he has already invested that much in you that he was willing to even sacrifice himself, do you think he's going to let something that you feel is is in the way, do you think he's going to let that cause him to give up on his project with you? Do you think he would abandon you in your moment of need? If you're going blind, do you think he's going to be the fiancé who says, okay, that's too much for me, I'm walking away. If you are struggling with something in your life, if you've lost a job, if you're facing depression, if you're feeling anxious, do you think those are the moments when God is going to say, well, you don't measure up, so I'm done with you? Is that the type of God that we serve? Do you think God would even say when you continue to struggle with your shortcomings, when you know that you in so many ways still don't resemble who Jesus is and, and you, you feel guilt because of that, do you think he would say, you don't meet my standards, I'm done with you? This passage is telling us That God has invested so much in us already. He who gave his own son did not spare his own son. Do you not think he will continue to work with you and freely give to you what you need so that none of these things that come into your life will be able to separate you from the love of God? 
He's already invested too much time, too much sacrifice, too much love in you to let something else derail his plans for you. What a powerful thought. I would even go so far as to say this, because the passage seems to include all things. Not even our sin can separate us from the love of God. Now hear what I mean by that. Sin does hurt God more than we can ever imagine. Sin prevents us from moving forward through the project that He has for us of transforming us. It is our stubborn refusal to allow the righteousness of Jesus to reign over our our lives and our refusal to be on that path to the glorification that He has destined for us, what He wants for us. But it does not take us out of His love. How do I know that? You go back a few chapters in the book of Romans. Go back to chapter 5. The text tells us while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, okay, there is some hostility that is there of our actions against him, but it says that he still demonstrated his own love for us, even in that moment. The only reason our sin hurts him so much is because he loves us. People wouldn't hurt you. If you were indifferent to the people around you, then what they they did wouldn't hurt you. When you see someone that is living a wayward life, it hurts you because you love them. That's how God is with us. So not even sin releases us from God's love. He's still working on us. He's coming after us. He's the father who's there at the the home looking out over the horizon to see if his son would come home as the parable that Jesus tells us portrays. And he will run to us as soon as we do. God is too invested in this purposeful calling to let something else derail it. Now here's the second principle from this text. Justification wins over condemnation. I talked a couple of weeks ago about the idea of atonement. And we talked about five different languages that the Bible uses to, to help us understand atonement. One of those languages is, is, is the language of the law courts. The legal terminology. You're guilty. How are you going to be to not have the sentence that should come along with your guilt. That's the idea of justification. It is to make you righteous. The book of Romans itself is going to tell us that that's only available because of your faith in Jesus Christ and because He has lived a righteous performance. Therefore, in Him, you can be righteous in the eyes of God. Now, here's why that's important in this text. Go with me down to verse 33, when it talks specifically about the elect here. Those whom God has chosen and those who have heeded that call, who have accepted that call to follow Jesus, we can trust that Jesus' righteousness is more powerful than any charges that could be brought against us. 
I know you see that on paper, but I don't think our hearts are always fully convinced of that. I think we struggle sometimes with the charges that others, fellow humans, may bring against us. Those who may slander us, those who may try to hurt our reputation, those who may make us feel guilt over something. That's one form of charge that could be brought against us. The early Christians were accused of all kinds of things that were not true. They were accused of being cannibals because they shared the Lord's Supper. They were accused of of being those who were trying to subvert the, the empire, trying to be revolutionaries. They were accused of all kinds of activities to try to paint them as the bad guys. Our world in many ways, while the terminology may have changed some, is going to do the same thing to the followers of Jesus Christ. They're going to throw terms at us. They're going to try to slander us. They're going to try to to label us as something evil. This text is telling us no matter what name someone puts on you, no matter what label they put on you, if it's a slander that comes from a fellow human being, if it's an accusation from Satan himself trying to make you still feel guilty over something that's already been forgiven, this text is telling you that none of those charges will separate you from the love of God. Why? Because Jesus is the one who justifies. Look down in verse 34 with me. Jesus died, he was raised, he's at the right hand of God, and what's he doing? He's interceding for us. So no charges that can be brought against me are greater than what than Jesus' defense for me. Does that make sense? If Jesus is my advocate, if I am in him, he has me. Jesus never loses a case. I don't care what prosecution is coming against me. If Jesus is with me, Jesus does not lose a case. That's part of why we are grounded in knowing that we are not separated from the love of God. Jesus' righteousness was greater than sin. Jesus' resurrection was greater than death. Jesus' defense of me is greater than, not not through my defense, his defense through his righteousness is greater than any accusation that could be brought against me. What charge can come against God's elect who are in Christ Jesus? They mean nothing. They will not separate us from the love of God. Here's the third principle that goes along with that. Why don't you back up in the text a little bit? Go back to the beginning of this reading, verses 26, 27. Look at these a little bit. Here's the principle. What God the Son is doing by the Father's throne, and that is intercession. God the Spirit is doing in your heart. I'm convinced that's why both of those ideas are in this text, and that's why I started our reading with verse 26. Verse 26 is going to ground us in the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us. That's talked about earlier in this chapter. The Holy Spirit is God with us, God in us. And this text tells us in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit is helping our weakness. And then it goes on and talks about how sometimes we don't even know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit is there playing a role within us. What this text is really getting across, and this is really important, 
The ongoing work of intercession, we think of our prayers going through Jesus, the Son, who is the mediator between God and man, and we are praying through Him to the Father. That's absolutely true. But that intercession actually starts before that. It starts within you. It starts with the work of the Spirit of God within you. Searching your heart for what is troubling you. Seeing your weaknesses. Seeing your pain. Seeing your insecurity. What insecurities are you feeling? What doubts do you have? What what feelings of being abandoned are there in your heart? What loneliness is there? What, What separation are you feeling due to some of the things that are mentioned in this passage? Whatever is stressing you, whatever is leaving you in a state of unrest, is robbing you of your Sabbath condition of rest in Jesus Christ. The Spirit is there identifying those things, identifying your pain, identifying your groanings. And this text is telling us that the Spirit of God is not only searching to reveal those things, the Spirit of God is actually groaning along with you. You're in pain. God is within you groaning along with you. Bringing your groanings, interceding for you, bringing your groanings to the Father. There's so much here. We could preach a whole lesson just on that, these couple of verses here because of all that is going on here. Here's what that means. That means that, yes, the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Conscious prayer going constantly. You know, as, as much as we can, continue to take, take advantage of that and pray to God. But even when we are not, and even in those moments when we have difficulty finding the words to pray, difficulty articulating the pain that is in our hearts, the Spirit of God is still at work. He is articulating the pain that we cannot even find the words to express. There is an ongoing exchange between the Spirit and the Son who is at the right hand of the Father and the Father who is there. There is an exchange that is going on constantly for God's children. I don't know about you, I take a lot of comfort in that. And I take comfort in the fact that that grounds me of knowing that is one way God is showing me that no matter what Pain, insecurity, abandonment, whatever else that I'm feeling in my life, that that chain that is binding me to God's love has not been broken. God Himself is that chain. He's working constantly. And the last principle is actually the one in the verse that follows. The most familiar in this text to us. Verse 28. God is at work for good. Now I think we could take that text and you could run with it in a lot of different ways which people have done. This text does not say that all things are good. Yes, God created the world good. He created you good. But there have been other forces who have been at work in this world. It is fallen. 
not, it's not saying that everything that happens will be good. It's not even saying that everything that happens is intended by every force that is enacting those things for good. Evil is real. Being bound to God's love does not mean that you are protected from anything evil ever happening. So let's be careful about not, you know, some people will will buy into that prosperity gospel and, you know, Jesus promises me health and wealth and when I get in there and I realize this is not that easy and there's there's some difficulties here. But I thought God said all things were going to be good for me. No, that's not what this text says. Here's what this text says. It says that God is working to take all that happens and use it for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. It means He's a grand weaver of all these things in ways that we cannot even see. I love how Dallas Willard, his comments on this verse, because He who not only loves me but is love is so great, I live beyond harm in His hands. And there is nothing that can happen to me that will not turn out to my good. Nothing. That is what Romans 8.28 really means. Irredeemable harm does not befall those who willingly live in the hand of God. The key there is irredeemable. No harm to this body is irredeemable. Right? Isn't that what the text is telling us? When it mentions sword, neither life nor death, nor sword nor power, you can cut this body to pieces and it does not separate me from the love of God. It does not separate me from ultimately a good outcome in Christ. It won't break the bonds of God's love. No friend slandering me. No fiancé walking out on me. None of that is irredeemable. It won't, break, it won't break that chain, break the bonds of God's love. No weapon of Satan, even, is irredeemable. Sin, it's been defeated on the cross if you will accept that victory of Jesus. Death, it's been defeated on that Sunday morning when he rose from the dead if you will accept that victory. In Jesus, I've been foreknown, I've been predestined, I've been called, I've been justified, I'm destined to be glorified. We are more than conquerors when we are in Jesus, folks. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We cannot love you nearly as much as you love us. We want to. We love because you first loved us. Because you loved us when we were sinners. Because you loved us enough to die for us. Greater love has no man than he who would lay down his life for his friends. Thank you for this ultimate expression of love. And thank you for making it possible 
that we can live within that love which will not let us go. That will hold us through the darkness that we walk through sometimes. That will be with us in our suffering. That will be with us in our doubts and our pain. Even in death itself. We cannot thank you enough for this today, Father. May we trust in you more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, if you have something that you're struggling with in your life that we can pray about, if you don't feel the love of God today, feelings are not always to be trusted. They can be deceptive. I hope that you feel that today. If you don't, let's talk about that. Let's talk about maybe some of the reasons why. Maybe some of those barriers that, that, that have come in and have upset your, your heart to feel outside of God's love. If you're here, we've talked a lot about how nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. God loves you no matter what you have done in your life. But He loves you so much that if you've listened to this message about the purpose that He has for you, His design for you is to free you from the sins that have bound you. It it is to, to reshape you in the image of Jesus Christ. His design for you is to make you righteous. It happens, as a couple chapters earlier in Romans tells us, if we, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we're going to be justified by that faith, but a genuine faith includes a repentance from our sins, a confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or Him, or Jesus is Lord, as later on Romans chapter 10 is going to tell us. It includes our baptism into Him. It's an incomplete faith without that. Baptism into Him unites us with Him. It, it wraps us up in Him. We're clothed with Jesus Christ. We start walking in newness of life, having the assurance of everything that this passage is talked about. If that's missing in your life, if something else is missing that you want to talk about, please come as together we stand as we sing.